Welcome to Gateway's Podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from one of our pastors. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. Uh, good morning, Gateway Church. My name is Bart. If I haven't met you yet, I serve as discipleship pastor here at the church. And uh, Pastor Don is out of the country this morning on a, on a pastor's trip. And I have the privilege to be able to speak with you this morning. Uh, I've talked about this before, um, but you know, I've, uh, I'm a, a graduate of East Carolina University. I spent four years and one summer session uh, as an East Carolina student. And uh, I changed my major about four or five times. Uh, over that process. I started out in biology. I was going to be like a, a doctor and I thought I was going to go into medicine. And then I, I quickly realized that like it takes a lot of school to be a doctor. And I don't think I want to be in school this long. And then I, I switched to, I think, sociology for a short amount of time. And then I got fascinated by psychology. So I became a psychology major. And then at some point I became a philosophy major. And then finally, finally, I graduated as a general studies major with a religious studies concentration, uh, which is kind of funny. But I think philosophy was probably my most short-lived major. Now, how many of you this morning, I'm just going to ask you, how many of you in high school or college have taken a philosophy course? Yes? Okay, a lot of people. Now, how many of you were a philosophy major? Okay, good. That means I can tell this next joke. Um, <laughs> what was the first thing the philosophy major said after graduation? Everybody say, What? Would you like some fries with that? That's my only dad joke, I promise, of the whole sermon. No, I, I actually love philosophy. I love philosophy because in philosophy, you get to ask and think about some really big questions. So like, who am I? Uh, why am I here? What is the meaning of life? What is good and evil? What is truth? You get to ask these really big essential questions that I think all of us at some point in life, we ask ourselves these things. We wanna know, what is this world all about? These are all essential questions, but I would argue this morning that there's one essential and life-changing question that's just way more important than any of these, that if you get this question right, all of the other questions in life fall into place. This question has been asked for, for 2,000 years over and over again, and the question is this. It's very simple but profound. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The Bible itself, this question gets asked over and over again. Who is this man that can speak to the waves and calm the waves and calm the sea? Who is this that can forgive sins? Who is this that can make a, a paralytic walk again? Who is this that can make blind men see? Almost every world religion has some kind of answer to this question as well about who they think that Jesus is. Muslims say he was a, a great prophet. Buddhists say he was a wise teacher and a holy man. Uh, Hindus say he was one of the little G gods. Jehovah's Witnesses say he was the first created being, an A God, but not the God. Mormons say he, he's, he was created at that moment in Bethlehem, he came into being, and that he's like God, but he's different than God. Now you might say, Bart, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. We know who Jesus is. That's why we're here this morning. But here's what I would tell you. One is there is way more confusion in our culture than at any other time in history about this question. 
And two, that confusion often creeps its way into the church. So for example, they did a study, Christian Smith and his fellow researchers, with the National Study of Youth and Religion. They took a close look at the religious beliefs of teenagers, American teenagers, and they found that the, the faith that most teenagers held could be described as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, those are some, some big words, but I'm going to explain it in just a second. By the way, these teenagers were from like early 2000s, so now they are in their 20s and 30s, much like me. I don't know why you guys think that's funny. Here's what, here's what they discovered. This is the predominant belief of one generation. Number one, that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Sounds pretty good. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and in most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And the worst one of all, number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, I'm, I'm not picking on one generation here. Hear me out. I'm just saying that you can't assume that everyone who walks in the door of Gateway Baptist Church can answer the question about who is Jesus and what does it mean to be a Christian? And do you see the danger in some of these beliefs that I just mentioned? The danger is that Jesus becomes this mascot that we like trot out on Sunday morning to make us feel good about ourselves, to give us some solutions to some of life's problems. And then we just stick him back in our pocket again for the rest of the week. We, we made Jesus uh, about us. We made us the center of the story, not him. And that's a problem. Almost every single one of these belief statements comes from a misunderstanding of the person of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus, if he were just a man, or if he just were one of the gods, or if he was just a philosophy to live by or a good teacher, then you can safely forget about him this morning. But if he is God, as he claimed to be, one day you and I will stand before him, and you can't afford to be wrong. Now, we're going to do a little theology this morning. Uh, I know that word is a little scary, I know that word can be a little intimidating. I completely understand. Uh, when I say the word theology, it either instantly terrifies you this morning or it instantly puts you to sleep. 50 people fell asleep just when I mentioned it at 9 a.m. So we're, we're gonna do a little theology. We're gonna get into it a little bit. And um, you know, I think that's okay, but here's, here's the truth. Every single one of us in this room is a theologian. You might not know that, but you are a theologian. Every time you hear the Bible, every time you hear someone talk about the word of God, every time you think about the big questions about who God is and you take in information and you begin to systematize it in your mind and, you become, and it becomes a belief. Every one of you is a theologian. Every one of your kids is a theologian. Have you talked to your kids before about God and heard some of the questions if they ask about who he is, every kid in this room is a theologian. My kids ask some deep, deep questions about God that I didn't know the answer to. So the question is not, are you a theologian this morning, but what kind of theologian are you? Are you a sound theologian today? So if, if you think theology is boring, I understand. If you think you're not smart enough to understand it, I get it. But I just wanna stretch you a little bit this morning. I wanna get you out of your comfort zone just a little bit. We are called to love God with all of our heart, 
with all of our soul, with all of our minds, and with all of our strength. Without theology, we're like a ship just wandering in the sea without a rudder. Uh, We could easily just drift aimlessly between one belief and another belief. We can be vulnerable to the tides of popular opinion or cultural trends. You can get tossed around by every single new doctrine that comes, lacking the foundation necessary to withstand the storms of life. See, theology for me is like a navigational tool. When, when I can't see the horizon, when things are unclear ahead of me, it grounds me in biblical truth. It helps me see. And so this morning, we're going to start week one of two in theology class on the person of Jesus. And Nick's going to start next week and answer one of these questions. And we are taking attendance, so make sure you're here. Uh, One of the best places we can turn to in the Bible to answer the question of who is Jesus is the Gospel of John. So if you've got your Bibles, would you open up to the Gospel of John? You'll have to forgive me a little bit this morning if I sniffle or if I cough. I've been under the weather all weekend, and like any man, I've been really dramatic about it. So God bless my wife. (laughs) Y'all get that, right? Amen, wives? Yeah, we don't handle sickness the way you guys do, right? Turn your Bibles to the book of John. It's interesting how the different gospel accounts begin in different ways. They start in different places. So Matthew starts his gospel account with the lineage of Jesus, listing all these generations of people from one to another, all the way back to the person of Abraham. Uh, Mark starts his gospel. Uh, he, he begins uh, with going uh, and talking about uh, Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. Uh, Luke starts his gospel with the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. But John, well, John starts with what we call the prologue. The gospel of John wastes no time in getting right to the heart of the identity of Jesus. John leads us right up to the Grand Canyon of theological truth in this prologue. And yet he uses words so simple and so profound that a kid can read it and understand it and believe it. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the, bro- the prologue, those first few verses in the book of John. And I think what John means to do is he means to put us in awe of the person of Jesus Christ, to stun us with the reality of who Jesus really is so that we would reflect and we would think about it and we'd be transformed by what we hear and what we read. Second Corinthians 3.18, Paul puts it this way, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. So seeing the glory of who Jesus is, our Lord, says we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Here's what that means, that this amazing thing happens through the Holy Spirit, that when we look at Jesus, we slowly begin to start looking like Jesus in the way we live, in the way we think, and what we value and what we love. Uh, as, as we look at him, we become like him. You become what you behold. As we behold, he begins to mold. Okay, I got a ton of these, so stop me right there, right? You get it, right? The more we see him in all his glory, the more we become transformed to be more like him. So believer, that's why we're here today. If you think this question has nothing to do with you, you're absolutely wrong this morning. What we're meant to see and savor. All right, open your Bibles up to John chapter one. And I would love for you to just read along with me. We're going to be walking through verse by verse, and hopefully we'll get through three this morning, maybe four. 
I want to give you four truths about the identity of Jesus this morning from John chapter 1. And it starts with these iconic words. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. Now, when I say the phrase, um, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse, what do you immediately think of? Maybe everybody's afraid to say it because it's church. You think of the Godfather, right? I'm going to make an offer he can't refuse. I can't do the voice, so I'm not even going to try. If I say, um, in a galaxy far, far away, what does that make you think about? Star Wars. Star Wars. Thank you. Yes. Got some nerds in the house. Love it. I'm with you. So these are iconic statements that immediately take your mind back to somewhere, to some place. John's doing the same thing. He says, in the beginning, and immediately his readers are taken back to the verse, first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, John says, was the word. Now, we don't find out who the word is till like verse 14, verse 17, when we discover that John is talking about the person of Jesus. And truth number one about the identity of Jesus is that he has always existed and that he's eternal. When John says in the beginning, he's talking about before anything was created outside of space and time, before matter and time existed, Jesus was, God was. A lot of people believe that nothing happened to nothing and then we got something. Now that takes a lot of faith to believe that. But John says, no, before anything existed and anything that we know came into being, there was something. Jesus has always existed. In the beginning was the word. Now, this gets really interesting. This is one of the most confusing pieces of this theological puzzle we're kind of putting together this morning. Why does John describe Jesus as the word. That, that Greek word here, by the way, is logos. Why does he use that to describe who Jesus is? Well, here's truth number two about the identity of Jesus. Jesus is the word. I want to explain this a little bit. John was talking to two different audiences here, both Hebrew and Greek. And for these audiences, that word logos, that word for word, would carry some philosophical weight behind it. So for Greek philosophers for centuries, uh, they knew this word logos and they would talk about how in creation, if you look at nature, there's an order to it. There's a balance to it. There, there's something behind it that is a reason and there's a design behind it. And they said behind all of this must be some divine reason, some impersonal force that orders the universe and gives it meaning and gives it order. Now, I know we're getting really heady this morning, so I'm going to bring this down to earth a little bit. And Pastor Tim Keller really helped me with this as I was studying for this sermon by giving this illustration, and hopefully this will help you. It's not perfect analogy. It's not a perfect analogy, but I think this will help. A couple of weeks ago, I bought a miter saw, or as you might know it, a chop saw. And I love this saw. It helps me so much. It's like one of my favorite tools that exists in my garage. And with it came a manual, or what I'm going to call this morning a logos. In that manual is the word on my miter saw. It tells me how to use it. It tells me its purposes. It tells me how not to use it. And that if I don't align with how it's designed, that I might hurt myself. Do you see what I'm saying here? It's this word on my miter saw. It tells me what it's made to do, 
what his purposes are. And if I align with this word on my miter saw, I'll find life and I'll find some, some great joy in cutting these pieces of wood perfectly. But if I don't align with the word behind it, then I could easily chop my fingers off and things would go bad very quickly. John is redefining the word logos for these Greek philosophers. And he's saying there's an ultimate reality behind this universe that holds everything together. There's an intelligent designer behind all this creation. There's something that if you align with it, you're gonna find life. And this logos, it's not an impersonal force. It's not an abstract thought. You can find this logos in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Plato, several hundred years before Christ, said to this, to his Greek comrades in philosophy. He said, maybe one day a logos, a word or a reason, will come from God who will reveal the mysteries and make things plain. John selects under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this same word, and in effect what he's saying is that this reason has come. This explanation, he just arrived in the flesh. The word is here. This is a revolutionary thought. But we'll see in this passage, it's also a claim that's widely rejected. We, we don't think there's really an absolute truth in our culture. We don't think there's an ultimate reality. We think truth is relative. Anything that you feel is right is probably right. There's no order to all this. It's all just chaos. But just because we feel that way doesn't make it true. I used to have this amazing dream as a kid. I don't know if you've shared this before you know, in your own life, but I had this dream when I was a kid that I could fly. And it was amazing because it was so vivid. I really felt like I was flying. And so one day I woke up and I decided, well, I'm gonna test this out. Maybe I can fly. Maybe this wasn't a dream at all, but like I have these powers. So I went on my back porch steps and I got to the top step and I jumped off the top step and I thought, ooh, I felt like I got a little extra hang time there. That was not a normal jump. I felt like... I could really fly. So then I climbed on the top railing of my back porch and I get up on the top railing and I decide to just Superman it and try to fly into my yard. And what happens? Well, immediately I begin to believe in the truth of, of gravity. I mean, ouch, did that hurt? Just because I felt like gravity didn't exist didn't mean that it didn't exist, that there wasn't truth there about what gravity was. You see how this relates to John? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the logos. He is the word behind everything in existence that includes you and me. He's the ultimate reality. He's the reason we and everything else in this universe exists. And when we align our lives with his, that's where we find life. So John connected this to Greek philosophy. He also connected it to his Jewish readers who would have immediately, when they saw the word, would have thought about back to the, the book of Genesis, the, the word of the Lord, right? The let us do this, let us make man and, and let there be light. The word of God went out and created everything. They would have thought about the word of the Lord given to the prophets that God spoke through the prophets and gave his word. They would have thought about literally the word of God. Now, what does that have to do with Jesus? Let me tell you. A word is an expression of a thought. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, it's a revelation of a thought that's in our minds. In other words, you would never know what I'm thinking right now, this moment, if I didn't communicate it to you in some way. 
Uh, either through a word, either through body language, either through a written form of communication. Uh, a word expresses what I'm thinking. It expresses a thought. And, and so John is connecting this as Jesus Christ is the word of God. It is God revealing himself to us through the person of Jesus. God revealing his thoughts. God revealing his purposes. God revealing his plan in Jesus Christ. He is called the word of God. Just a few verses down in verse 18, if you scroll down to verse 18 for just a second, John explains, no one has ever seen God, the one and only son who is himself God and is at the father's side, he has revealed him. Do you wanna know what God's like? Do you wanna know what God does, what God feels, what God delights in, you know, what, what is he's harsh towards? Do you wanna know what that is? then you better get your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus didn't come into our world to get us. He knows us perfectly. He understands exactly who we are. He came so that we would get God to know him. Frederick Bruner says this, we long to know who God is and what God thinks and does. In Jesus, his most personal word, Jesus, you know, God speaks, he speaks through creation, but in his most personal word, Jesus, God has spoken to us in the most human way possible, giving us his innermost thoughts and heart in deeds that are as profound as his words, and the believing human race has experienced deep help ever since. Through Jesus, God gave us in such clarity the nature of his character, the nature of his grace, the nature of his truth, the nature of who he was, all that was revealed in the person of Jesus. So one, one way to look at that is this, that the Bible is God's inspired written word transcribed, but Jesus is God's word personified. In fact, if you flip all the way back to the Bible in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 19, right towards the end of scripture, it describes Jesus this way. John says, he wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. What an amazing truth. Whew, I know there's a lot to take in this morning. We're almost done with verse one, I promise. All right, look back at John chapter one. In the beginning was the word. Oh gosh, it's gonna blow us away for a second. And the word was with God and the word was God. Truth number three from this wonderful prologue is that Jesus is God. The word was with God and the word was God. John really couldn't like state this any more simply. You couldn't take one word out of this, right? And he couldn't say it more basically. And yet it's so profound. Jesus was with God and he was God. Wait, how could that be? How could he be with and how could he be? How's that possible? This is one of the scriptures that we look at that affirms the doctrine of what we call the Holy Trinity. That we worship one God, but in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That statement that Jesus was God is a clear declaration that Jesus is God himself. Through, though distinct from the Father, the Son is equal to the Father in every way in his, God, in his Godhood. So whatever it means to be God, right? Jesus is all that. And then he was with God, which is a relational term that, that translated means he was face to face. He was in a relationship with the Father. So the Father, Son, and Spirit are all in perfect unity and relationship. It's not by accident then that we go back to the book of Genesis and it says, let us make God 
make man in our image that uses the plural. As you look through the pages of scripture, yes, the word Trinity is never used, but you see it all over the pages of scripture from Genesis to the book of Revelation. Now, can I explain the Trinity to you this morning? No, I am not smart enough. I don't think anybody here is smart enough to explain the mysteries of the Trinity, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Yes, it's daunting and all of our analogies and object lessons just seem to fall short. That doesn't mean it's not true. Augustine, the brilliant church father, early church father, he was walking along the ocean one day and he sees a boy you know, digging a hole in the sand. And then the boy runs and, and has a bucket with him and he takes it to the water and then he runs back to the hole and he pours it in and then he does it again and again. And Augustine sees him fervently doing this and he stops him for a second. He says, what are you trying to do? He says, well, I'm putting the ocean in the hole. I'm, I'm filling this hole with the ocean, right? That, that's impossible. It's, it's not able to happen. And so to understand or fully explain the Trinity is like to pour an ocean of the infinite into our finite minds. It, it can't happen. But this claim of Jesus that he was God and then the way his life backed it up and he proved it, it's what separates Christianity from any other religion, any other worldview. All right, verse two, we're making progress here. We're gonna move a little bit faster at this point. He was with God in the beginning. So he's just making this very clear. He's repeating himself again. Verse three, all things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life and that life was the light of men. Here's truth number four. Jesus is the creator of all things and the giver of life. Colossians 1.16 says something similar. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Uh, one commentator I read made this point so brilliantly. He said, if you could get like the world's most expensive microscope, one that probably doesn't even exist right now, if you could see beyond the atoms that make up the universe and beyond the, the particles that make up the atoms, you would find a little tiny inscription that says, made by JC. He's the creator of everything. And you know what? That includes you and I this morning. That's a wonderful thought to think about. We've been created by Jesus. And then Colossians says, we've been created for Jesus. And so if you think about that for just a second, we've been created by him and for him. What does that mean? Well, it means my job may never satisfy all my needs in life because I wasn't created by my job and for my job. It's why I often talk to, to businessmen in this church who, who say, Bart, you know, I've gotten to the, the pinnacle of success. I've gotten to the pinnacle of my field, and yet I feel so unfulfilled. And it's yet why often people who align God's purposes with their work or with their family or with their life begin to feel life and be fulfilled in all that they do. It's why my wife, Jen, as amazing as she is, she could never meet every need in my life. That certainly puts way too much pressure on her because I wasn't created by Jen and for Jen. It's also why it makes sense that my selfish desires, living for my pleasure, for my will, making decisions that only make me happy will never satisfy me. I'll always want more and more 
and more. Why? Because I wasn't created by me and for me. We were created by Jesus and for Jesus. I've been made for him and life is found in that and that alone. Back to verse three. All things were created through him and apart from him was not one thing created that has been created. So just in case you run into some friends uh, we call Jehovah's Witnesses that come to your house and they say, look, the Greek language in John chapter one is kind of ambiguous. It, it means Jesus was just a God, not the God. Well, John says, no, I'm gonna make this really clear for everyone in this room. Apart from him, not one thing was created that was created. Uh, he's making his point clear saying, anything that goes into the category of being made, Jesus made it. So, so Jesus cannot be in the category of made because he made everything that was made, which is what it means to be God. Not created, but always existing. Jesus is making it clear he is God. Well, I wanna wrap up just skipping down a few verses to verse 10, if you'll follow along with me. He was in the world and the world was created through him. There's that truth again. And yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The ironic truth is that even our creator entered in to the world that he created and yet many rejected him. The ironic truth is he came to his own people and his own people didn't welcome him or recognize him. Many of us still reject him as Lord today. Yes, we may accept him as a good teacher or to give us good principles, moral principles to live by or to help us feel good when we need it, but we reject him as God. In other words, many of us are okay with him being part of our life, but not the center of it in which he belongs. Here's the question though. If Jesus eternally existed and always was and was eternal, if he created all things, right? If he was God himself, is that the kind of person that you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? No, that's the kind of person you revolve your life around. He's the center, not us. Here's the good news, verse 12. But to all, who? All. All who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of flesh or of the will of man, but of God. How did Jesus secure our right to become God's children if we trust him in faith? Look at verse 14. This is an amazing miracle. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as of the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was born a man so that we could become born of God and adopted into God's family. Jesus was born into the world he created as a man. And because of us, our sin, he gave his life in our place so that we can be forgiven and we can have life in his name, which is the truth we're gonna be diving into next week when it comes to the identity of Jesus. Nick is going to be leading us on what does it mean that, that Jesus is fully God and yet fully human? but I'll end with this. Isn't our Savior wonderful? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't it amazing that all the questions 
the big questions in life. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is truth? What is good and evil? Isn't it amazing that that's not dependent on my thoughts or your thoughts or my own beliefs or your own beliefs, but they're answered in the incomparable and amazing person and work of Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? Is he the center of your life this morning? You better settle that question today. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the amazing truths in the first chapter of the book of John. It's humbling to read. We, we can't grasp it all, Lord. It's profound. It's, it's amazing to think about, and yet it's so simple that we can receive it. We can understand it. And uh, God, the greatest thing that we really understand is that, that you've revealed yourself in the person of Jesus. And when we look at him, his grace and his truth, his love, his care, God, we see you. We see who you are. God, if there's anyone in this room that, that is just treating you as their, their assistant or just someone to, to trot out and make themselves feel better, God, or to give some good advice, would you help them see that you're meant to be the center of everything that we are? And that in that, God, we find freedom and life. When we orient our lives around you and not ourselves, that's where we find satisfaction and joy and just amazing life. That's where we find life to the full. I pray for anyone in this room that they would settle that today. They would know who you are, that you're God. You're worthy of our worship, Lord. You're worthy of orienting our lives around. We love you, God, and we thank you for this amazing truth. Help us to, to be changed by it, to be transformed by it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.